Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. For more information about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, visit us at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening his word. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Jonathan Birch. I'm the kids minister and the family minister here at the Door Church. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning, uh, worshiping together. We're, we're finishing up our sermon series in the book of Genesis. We've been 13 weeks uh, in Genesis, uh, and, and we're going through Genesis because Genesis is the beginning. This is, this is who God says he is. Uh, and you see the questions up on the, the bumper video, where are you, who are you? Uh, these are questions that, that are, are, are geared to, to prime our, where do we put our identity in? And are we orienting our lives towards God and who he says he is? God is who determines what truth is, uh, what reality is. And as we go through Genesis, we see, we see a picture of God. Genesis is about God, uh, and it's not about us. And we've, we've gone through uh, the big picture, the ark, the creation, and the fall. We see how that points us to uh, redemption and, and restoration. In creation, we see God create the world and it was good. Uh, he creates life and vegetation with the sea in itself to produce. He creates man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation. And he, he, he commands them to reproduce, to spread their seed. Uh, and then we see the fall. We see the serpent spread the seed of doubt. Uh, and then we see uh, that lead to Adam and Eve's fall and the seed of sin is then planted in Adam and Eve. Immediately they hide in shame, and then the seed of sin then begins to germinate, and Cain kills Abel one generation later. And then we see the flood in the Tower of Babel, and now all of a sudden the seed of sin has corrupted all humanity, and we're utterly depraved. It says the imaginations of the thoughts of our hearts are wicked. But we've also seen glimpses of gospel seeds. Uh, in, in redemption, in, in restoration, we see redemption, the seed of the gospel, when, when God clothes Adam and Eve after they fall with animal skins. And he says that the seed of the offspring of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And then we see redemption when God saves Noah. We saw that last week. And, and then we see restoration, the seed of restoration when God saves Noah and he gives them the sign of a rainbow uh, to say he will never destroy the, the world by a flood again, and, and that rainbow points to the new heavens and the new earth where God on his throne is surrounded by a rainbow. So if you're, if you're paying attention, you, you've heard me repeat the word seed quite often. I'm saying seed. Seed uh, and offspring is the same word in Hebrew. It comes from the same root word. And today the sermon title is called the seed of Abraham. So we're ending our sermon series uh, with Abraham, uh, the father of our faith. And the text today is taken from Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 21. Genesis 15, 1 through 21. All right, so it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and dark, great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sit here today under your word, I pray by your spirit uh, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes uh, to see what you have for us, that your covenant love chases after us, that you're faithful. Uh, I pray that the seed of the gospel would resonate in our hearts, that we would believe it, and it would show uh, through our action but we see that it's about you first and that you love us and you gave your son for us to die for our sins and that's what we need. I pray that we will rest in that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So a while back, I would say maybe several years ago, I was really into it. Uh, I was in my ancestry journey. I, I, put, I sent the 23andMe DNA test. I'm not going to tell you how, you, how, you, how they get those results, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. I sent that in and I, and I was you know, looking at my, 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 my genes, you know, 23 stands for 23 chromosomes. There's 23 sets of chromosomes that we have, and, and your DNA is stored on all those chromosomes. And I'm looking at all my, my DNA, uh, and they send you this, the, the data, it's in charts and graphs, and I'm, I'm a charts and graphs guy, so I love, I love to see this is who I am, and this is all the insight of who I am based off of my DNA, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, and, and one particular uh, aspect that I was really fascinated by is the Y chromosome, and if you don't know, what the Y chromosome is what makes boys, and that doesn't have a matching chromosome, so it doesn't swap with the, with the other pair. It's a standalone. It's, 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 the, it's the, the chromosome that determines a son. So a father passes this to his son, and that's passed to his son, to his son, throughout, without trading with other, other uh, genes. So that, that's, that Y chromosome stands alone, and it's like the eternal son. It just continues to perpetuate, and if I want to look and see insight into who I am, that Y chromosome has the same genes as my father, as my father's father, my father's father, and so forth and so on. And I was fascinated by this. But why am I so intrigued by this? What I'm doing is I'm looking into my ancestry, I'm looking into my Y chromosome, and I'm looking for a deeper root to anchor my identity. I'm trying to anchor my identity as deep as I can in my, 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 my genealogy. I'm asking a question, who am I? You know, where, where do I fit in in my genealogy? So my question for you guys today is, is who are you? Where do you seek identity? It, it may not be in, 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 in your offspring. It may not be in your genes. It, it may be your work. Uh, it may be other things that you put identity in. But my question is, where do you seek identity? If you call yourself a Christian, Abraham is called the father of our faith. So who is Abraham? That's the first question we have to ask. Who is Abraham? Well, he's 10 generations from Noah. 
Uh, we talked about Noah last week, and he seems to have this special relationship with God. Uh, so let's read again, uh, starting in verse 1, and let's reflect on who Abram is, uh, but more importantly, let's reflect on who God is for Abram. In verse 1, it says, the word of God comes to Abram in a vision saying, fear not. Now, up until this point, God has already spoken to Abram. Uh, in chapter 12, he, he, he comes to Abram, he says, go from your country and your family and I will bless you. And I will make you a great nation. And Abram uh, obeys by faith. He believes and obeys with courage. And in verse 7 in chapter 12, God comes to Abram and he says, to your offspring, I give this land. Abram responds by faith and he builds an altar to God. You see faith springing forth action. And in verse 13, God comes to Abram again and says, lift up your eyes. Look at the land that you see. I give you this land. Abram responds by faith and he builds an altar to God. So why the warning now not to fear? Why the warning where God says, do not fear? Well, this is the first time the word vision has come up in Scripture. Uh, and in a vision usually depicts something more, uh, more vivid about God himself. God is revealing more of himself uh, in, in a vision. We see that in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Revelation, where God comes and he reveals himself. And, and, and you, you just fall on your face. You say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy. And this vision gives us this sense of awe and this sense of fear of God. So whenever we as sinful creatures get in the presence of, an, of a holy God, it will, it should, should draw you to fear. So God is revealing more of himself in his vision, brings a holy fear, yet he tells Abram, do not fear. He says, I am your shield. And a shield is a defense. A shield is something you, you, you cover yourself with and it, it, it protects you from anything that's coming from the outside. So God is saying, he's not saying I will give you a defense, but God is telling, saying to Abram, I am your defense. See, God is revealing his character to Abram, who he is. He's saying the one who rightly draws you to terrify the fear of his holiness, to fear the terror of his holiness, this same God also shields you from that same terror. See, God is revealing his character. He's, he's all powerful, yet he's gentle. And he's gentle with Abram. So after God tells Abram who he is more vividly, God reiterates to him that your reward will be great. But then in verse 2 and 3, Abram asks God, well, what will you give me? Okay, what will you give me since the heir of my house isn't even my own? It's, it's a servant. So basically, Abram's saying, what does a great reward mean? What, is it, what does it mean without the sun, without a seed? What are earthly treasures? What are land? What is reputation? What does all that mean without the sun to pass on the name? So the question that I have for, for all of us is, do we realize that without the sun, without the son of God, um, reputation, wealth, it's all vanity. Now, a little bit of context about Abram, talking about wealth. Abram was a wealthy man. And if you ask, well, how did he get wealthy? And he just got caught three chapters earlier. How did he get his wealth? I'm, well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Abram, as he was leaving his land, he made a pit stop in Egypt. Uh, and he, has a, he had a beautiful wife. Her name was Sarah. And it was his half-sister, but it was also his wife. And he concocted a scheme out of fear to say, let's tell Pharaoh in Egypt that not, not that you're my wife, but that you're my sister. And so he gives his wife to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, in exchange, he treats him well. He gives him gold and treasure and cattle. He became wealthy uh, because he gave his wife to Pharaoh. So I don't know what you call that when you give somebody under your authority to somebody else to be theirs. Um, there's a word called trafficking. Uh, it, it, it sounds a lot like that. Um, and that's what he does. This is, this is Abram. And not only does he do it once, but he does it again uh, in chapter 20. If you think he thought he learned his lesson, he, you know, he, he continues to struggle with that. And like father, like son, 
Isaac does the same thing. Isaac has that. He does the same thing. He gets caught up in that, and he, he, he does the same thing with Rebecca. So if there was a thought, if there was a thought in your mind that being a person of faith meant first being a moral person, Abram kills that idea. He kills it off the bat. Uh, there's many, many godless people wouldn't do that. Even Pharaoh was like, bro, what, what are you doing? Like, because God was plaguing Pharaoh because of, he, he saved Sarah. God wasn't going to allow Sarah to be taken advantage of, so God plagued Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh found out what happened. He said, what are you doing? Like, why, why would you give me your wife? But this is, this is Abram. He was a human. This is who he was. This is the father of, of our faith. Um, he was also a man of, of great reputation. If you, you guys know in chapter 13 of, of, of Genesis, he, he rescued Lot. His Lot got swept up in, in, in his battle with kings. And he comes and he, he, he rescues Abram with his own army. He had his own army. That's how wealthy he was. He defeated the kings, but he, he refused to take their wealth. So this is a man who, who, who's not, his primary objective is not reputation. He's not after wealth primarily. It's the seed. It's the son that Abram is after. And in verse 4, God affirms to Abram that his, his heir, his inheritance, won't be in the servant and won't be in Eleazar, but in the son. So now we get to, to, to verse 5. And in verse 5, this is where I begin to get chills because we begin to see the promise from afar. Begin to, God opens the curtains. He gets, begins to show us a little bit more about this offspring. God tells Abram to look up to the heavens and number the stars if you can. He says, this is a picture of your offspring. Now, what's fascinating is God has already told Abraham a picture of his offspring back in chapter 12, where he says, look at the land, look to the north, south, east, and west. If you can count the dusts of the earth, that this is a picture of your offspring. So now God tells him, don't look at the earth, but look at the sky. This is a picture of the fullness of your offspring. Is God just emphasizing that Abram's going to have a lot of kids? Yes, he is telling that he's going to have a lot of kids, uh, but it's more than just having a lot of kids. It, he's slowly giving us a clearer picture of the seed of the offspring. And how do we know that? I love when scripture interprets scripture. We don't have to guess about that it's about the offspring rather than just many offsprings. It says it in Galatians. Uh, Paul writes, it says, now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring, who is Christ. So as God points Abram's attention to the dust of the earth in chapter 13, he's saying we see that the quality uh, the substance of that true offspring is that he will be a man of the earth, the son of man. See, it's not just about the quantity, it's about the quality. And we know that he, he's a man of the earth. It says it in Hebrews chapter 2. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the, pe for the sins of the people. So now God points Abram's attentions to, 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 the, to the stars of the sky. And we see that the true offspring is more than just a man. And like we read in Hebrews, though he's uh, not here to help heavenly beings, this offspring himself will be from heaven above. So what, what do we see? Abram is, is he's looking out on the horizon. What is he seeing? He's getting a distant view of the Savior of humanity, who through the Son, who's fully God, also fully man, and, and guess what? Who's also his shield. This is a picture of the sun. This is beautiful. Like a distant mountain range, a sunset over a distant mountain range. It's, it's the horizon that we get. And what does Abram do? How does he respond to this promise? We read it in verse 6. And Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, we have, we have to stop here because this small verse is the linchpin of, the, of this text, but it's also the linchpin of the entire scripture. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness given to us by faith alone. Sometimes I don't think we understand that. I mean, this is mind-blowing. That because of Christ, the sin that we feel in ourselves, the utter depravity, but when he looks at me, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but you're shielded by the sun and he sees Jesus. We give him our sin and he gives us perfect righteousness that we don't earn. We could preach this, this one verse for the rest of eternity and it won't be enough. Righteousness freely given to us. It says, and Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see Abram wasn't justified before God by any inherited righteousness from, from his ancestry. Again, he was an offspring of uh, 10 generations down from Noah. Noah was righteous by faith as well. But, but Abram didn't count on somebody else's faith. He personally, Abram personally, trusted in God as his own shield. There's a saying that God doesn't have any grandkids. Uh, it's either you're a son or you're a daughter or you're an enemy. There are no derivative relationships in the kingdom of God. Many people identify as Christian because they say, you know, I was born in a Christian family. My parents were Christian. Uh, I grew up in church. Uh, you know, I, I, I was born in Texas, you know. Christian, cult, whatever, the, whatever the reason why you think you're a Christian, many people have those ideas, but your family lineage is a very poor defense against God's wrath against sin. It's not going to shield you. Many people know the name of Jesus, but they don't trust in Jesus as their shield because they don't think they, they need anything to be shielded from. They think of themselves as being pretty good people. They don't see their sin. So they treat Jesus as just another identity badge to add on, you know, to your race, to your culture, um, anything that you inherit from, your, from your, your parents, and you think you can just add Jesus onto that, and he'll be okay with that. But Jesus doesn't come second to anyone. All identities bow down to Jesus. No one inherits righteousness through physical birth or lineage. Let's step through and go to verse 7. God then shifts from the offspring to the land that he's promised to give Abram to possess, so to take hold of. Now, there is an actual land that God is promising Abram and his offspring. We read about it in verses 19 uh, through 21, and I'm not going to read through all those very difficult names. But there's an actual land that God is promising Abram. But I want you guys to see that this is more than just a, a physical land. This is a spiritual picture of the territory of our lives that God enables us to possess with holiness after he justifies us. You see, this, this order of the son first, then the land, this is critical because this shows God's redemptive order using Abram as a template. See, there's always justification first, then sanctification. We're, we're made righteous, we're declared righteous, righteous by Christ alone. We're justified by Christ alone. Then he makes us look more like our savior. There's always faith, then works. True faith produces those good works. There's always identity first, then mission, then what you do. It's always that order. Justification always comes before our sanctification. In fact, it's the grounds for how we are sanctified. We're going deeper in justification. That's our job, and then God brings out sanctification through us. But it's always justification first. Righteousness by faith alone. And this is where many people get Christianity wrong when they think Christianity is primarily about morality and good behavior. See, in our sin nature, what we do is we ignore the heart change that we, that we need. We, we ignore that new identity that we need, and we try to use our works as a means to justify ourselves, to achieve that righteous identity, and that's self-righteous, that's wicked. If you're not born again by the seed of Christ, you can dress up the dead fruit 
of your dead lives until the day you die, and it's all futile if you're not born again. So my question to you guys is, do you, do you embrace the lie that you're justified by your works before God? I have to fight this lie in my life all, all day. In my life, I have this, this inner dialogue in my mind that says, Jonathan, if you do this, if you do this, then God will love you. Then God will accept you. Then God will approve of you. If you just do these things, and I can never do it quite right, and I believe that, that, that God's love for me is contingent, that it's conditional based, based off of what I do. This is that horizontal trading mentality. Like, I, I have to trade with God, and then God will give me. I fight that lie all the time. What it does is it leads to pride. It leads to death. Because then you're walking in envy of others who are walking in grace. You think that you're crushing it when you're not. You're going to be prideful. You're going to be envious. Do you ever find yourself working for an identity instead of working from your identity? When you're working for an identity, it leads to anxiety. When you're working from your identity and who Christ says you are through his son, that leads to joy. And here's a practical one. This is one we can all ask ourselves. Have you ever repented for your good works? Do you see the sin even in your best works. So our works as sanctified as they, as they may seem, they will never precede our justification. It'll never be the reason why we're justified. We don't have to clean ourselves up first, then go, go to God. We just read it. What, what, Abram just trafficked his wife, and God saves him. God justifies him. We read in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul, Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith as counted to him as righteousness. Justifi justification by faith alone. The works gospel is a false gospel that will never justify you. There's another false gospel, unfortunately, and that's the, the prosperity gospel, the, the gospel that says that once God saves you, you should live a life of prosperity, that's physical prosperity and ease, and that sanctification and obedience doesn't matter, that you should be able to live your best life now, that you shouldn't have to suffer. Well, this is a lie. This leads to disillusionment because scripture says, Jesus says, whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. This, this prosperity, this ease gospel is a false gospel. We know that the greatest reward on earth for one of the greatest rewards for a believer is to, after he saves us, to be made to look more like our savior. And that comes through, 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 through trials and suffering. As we read in verse 9, what happens immediately after Abraham, Abram's imputed righteousness? Well, God calls Abram to bring the sacrifices to confirm the oath that God would give him the land. And in verse 10, Abram obeys and begins to prepare the sacrifices. And in verse 11, Abram begins to chase off the birds of prey when they, when they come to sabotage the oath ceremony. By the way, I like what it says, when the birds of prey come. The birds of prey will always come uh, to a believer to try to discourage their sanctification. When we read verses like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I am holy, so be ye holy, for I am holy. These are, these are commands exhorting us to, 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 to emulate our Father. The birds of prey will always try to snatch that away, to try to discourage sanctification. But what does Abram do? He didn't take a passive approach, but he drove them away. We are, not, we are not to take a passive approach with sin. 
but we're to be killing sin always. We're born again once, justified once, but we're killing sin daily, always. So my question for you guys, is there a desire in your life to pursue holiness? That's not going to save you, but it, it sure is a sign of life. We see in verse 12, as the sun goes down and before this oath ceremony that happens in verse 17, what happens is, you know, Abram is put to sleep and experiences dreadful trials. In chapter 22, if you know the story of Abraham, his, the pinnacle of his trials is when he's uh, brought to sacrifice Isaac and God spares Isaac uh, at the last moment. But that was a trial and Abram experiences trials. And we see in this verse, verse 12, that Abram's experiencing dark and dreadful trials. Do you realize that sanctification, growth in God, do you realize that that will include dark trials? Do you view suffering as God's tool to make you more like your Savior? Or do you look at suffering as just something that, man, this is an inconvenience. Why is this happening to me? I shouldn't have to go through this. Or do you see that God is molding you to be more like the Savior who already saved you? As we summarize and, and kind of look through verses 9 through 12, what do we see? We don't see a life of ease and, and, and comfort uh, for the Christian, but one of effort and one of suffering. And it gets heavier in verse 13. The suffering doesn't stop at Abram, but it also includes his descendants for 400 years. It's always more heartbreaking when we see the, you know, the, the struggle and the suffering of, of the next generation of our kids and grandkids, and that's always more heartbreaking when we see that. We also see the same sin in our kids that we see in ourselves. And like Abram, in verse 8, we find ourselves crying out, oh, oh Lord, how do I know? How do we know that we're going to possess your promise? How do we know that we're going to overcome? I see this sin, the sin that sins to plague me and my offspring. How do we know that we will overcome and possess it? I see my sin, my self-righteousness, my self-centeredness, and I believe Christ is my shield, but I doubt that this wicked vessel could ever be made to look more like my Savior because I see it. I see the sickness of, of my flesh, and I don't believe. I have unbelief that I could be made to look more like my Savior. How do I know? How do I know that I'm going to overcome? I feel like Abram doubting. But the answer to this question we see in verses 13 through 16 is that our overcoming, our sanctification, our ultimate redemption is, is not in our hands. But as Paul says it in Philippians, God is the one who does the work. He who began a good work will finish it. It is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Redemption is God's master plan, not ours. And God completes what he starts. I love Psalms 121, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 7. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. You see, in verse 17, God confirms this oath with Abraham that, he, that Abraham would, would overcome. God confirms it all by himself while Abraham is knocked out. You see, we, we're the ones who are unfaithful. We're the ones who sleep on God. God doesn't sleep on us. What do we see? We see God fulfills that promise to Abram centuries later. Abraham's children do possess the land. God promises. He's a promise keeper. But this covenant is what I want us to see. This covenant is more than just temporal blessings. Our text today points to our eternal blessing, God's covenant of mercy in Jesus Christ. 
this covenant ritual in verse 17. It looks, looks very crazy. I mean, Abram's cutting up animals. Uh, he, he's, throwing, he, he's, he's shooing away birds. It looks very kind of foreign to us. But this is a covenant ritual, and, and it's much like a marriage. You know, I, I went to marriage. I, I, I was able to, uh, blessed enough to participate in a, in a wedding on Friday. And in a wedding, you have two parties, and they come together, and they're coming in together in union, a covenant a relationship where they are committed to one another despite circumstances. And they sign. There's a document they have to sign that says, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may the penalty fall on me. I am responsible. Each side is responsible to uphold their side of the covenant or they will bear penalty. This is a very animated form of that type of contract where we see Abraham cutting these animals. The reason why I say animated is because what they're saying is if, if the parties of this covenant that Abraham's getting ready to prepare, that God is getting ready to do himself, if the parties don't fulfill their side of the covenant, may they be cut off like the animals that are before them. The dead animals that are cut off and blood is everywhere, may they be cut off just like those animals if they don't fulfill that covenant. But what happens? God fulfills both sides of the covenant all by himself. On God's side, he bears the penalty. If God ever falls short of his own character, of his own faithfulness, he bears that penalty, but he'll never fall short of his own character. But then from man's side, God also bears the penalty from man because when we fall short, and we do fall short, when we fall short, God's justice and his holiness demands that we're cut off, just like those animals before Abram. But what happened? God sent his son, Jesus, to be cut off for us. See, at the cross, justice and mercy meet. God's covenant of mercy is not based off of our doing. If I do this, then God will. God's covenant of mercy is sure. He does it alone, not this for that. Salvation is the Lord's. Do you believe this? In your hearts, do you believe this? I pray we hear and we rest in this. Abram saw the promise. He saw the true seed from afar. He believed and was justified, but we get and we get a very close view of the seed. Jesus, who came, he lived a perfect life. He never did anything to anybody that deserved to being cut off. He lived a perfect life for us, but he died. He was cut off for us. Our sins were placed on him. He was planted in the ground, buried. Then, three days later, resurrected, justifying us. He's sitting on the throne, interceding for us. We have a living Savior. Romans 4, 23 through 25. This is, this is talking about Abram, but it says, but the words it was counted to him, that it was counted to Abram, was not written for Abram's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see how committed God is to you? He took your punishment. You're forgiven. Do you see that he'll never leave you or forsake you? Just reflect on your life. Do you see how faithful God has been in your life? By faith in Christ alone, our identity is no longer in our ancestry. Our identity is no longer in our dead works, but we are born again by the Holy Spirit with the seed of Christ, whereby as sons and daughters we cry out, Abba, Father. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You see, apart from Christ, you're living in a dead lineage. As I was combing through 23andMe, looking at all the, the different aspects of my, of, my, of my genetics, I was combing through thousands of dead ancestors, genes. There's nothing but dead seed in the flesh. As you comb through your works, there's nothing but dead seed that'll never blossom, but only at the cross where justice and mercy meet, where Jesus paid it all. Only at the cross do we receive the seed of eternal life, resurrection life. Not only when resting in Christ, our received identity, can we be obedient from our hearts and walk in the works that God has prepared for us, for his glory and for the benefit of others. I'm going to close talking about the benefit of others. Um, as we, it's fascinating as we talk about um, this covenant. It's fascinating in verses 18 through 21. This, this covenant is now explicitly stated to be for Abram's offspring. You know, we, we, we live in such a, a me, me, me culture. Yes, we will never be justified by our, in, uh, by our heritage, and we will never be justified by our works. But God does use our works as the means to bring justification to others, to save others. It's like the saying, through the foolishness of preaching, men are saved. It's not the preachers, it's the words that God uses through the obedience to go pre preach the gospel. Let your light so shine before men. God uses the works of his children to then be the means to then save others. It's not about us. We know that God used Abram's obedience for the, for the means to bless others because he says so in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. He says to Abram, and in, your, and in your offspring, which is Jesus, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Our obedience matters. It doesn't save us, but God will use that to bless others, to bring, bring Christ to others. Our works are not meant to terminate on ourselves, to make us sanctification superstars, but it's to build up others, to bless others, to build up the church. So if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you have that living spirit in you, this is what we're caught up in. We get to proclaim Jesus to others, the free gift, God's covenantial love, where he came to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He does it. We get to proclaim that love to others through our words and through our lives. I pray that we receive these words that we realize that we're, we're justified by faith alone, that Christ does the work, and it's a blessing, it's a beauty to walk in that, that saving grace through God's covenantial love. He's committed to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us is beyond words. It's hard to explain, but we know it's true because we look at the cross and we see at the great lengths you went through to save us, that you sent your son to bear our punishment. You, you resurrected him to give us that life in us, and it's a free gift. That's how committed you are to us. You love us because you love us because you love us, not by anything that we do. And I pray that we will receive this, that we will believe this more and more. And this would show in our lives that we're not here to glorify ourselves. We're here to point to you who came lived, died, resurrected for us. May we walk in that resurrection life today. In Jesus' name, amen.